Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Wheelan Presley and Van Hall Funeral Homes have been serving Quad City families and veterans for over 100 years. Wheelan Presley is located in Rock Island, Milan, Reynolds, and Van Hall in East Moline, proudly supporting WQPT. Alternatives is a proud supporter of WQPT and has been serving our community for 40 years. Alternatives provides professional guidance to maintain independence and quality of life for older adults and adults with disabilities. All it took was a caucus and a primary and the race for the White House appears set. What does that leave for politics this year in Illinois? In the cities. With our apologies to Nikki Haley, Dean Phillips, and Marianne Williamson, it does appear that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are their party's de facto nominees for the presidency. And all it took was one caucus and one primary. Still, Donald Trump is facing ballot challenges in at least two states, with the U.S. Supreme Court likely to get involved. We talked with Western Illinois University political science professor Keith Bockelman about the state of politics in Illinois, starting with the Board of Elections saying last week that Donald Trump can now be on the Illinois ballot. I guess my interpretation of this is the State Board of Elections kind of handled this as a hot potato saying, you know, we don't really want to deal with this. We don't want to have jurisdiction. This is really up to the courts. And so I think the really significant decision will be when the Supreme Court decides what states can or can't do in terms of keeping Donald Trump off the ballot. You are a student of political science for years. This is the strangest thing we've ever seen in political politics for the presidential race. Well, I think it is very unusual, both, I mean, it's really almost unprecedented, uh, this idea of keeping the presidential candidate off the ballot. You know, the, the, this debate goes back to the Civil War when there were some concerns that Jefferson Davis might run for president or something like that. Um, but this really hasn't been a live issue since the 1860s, really. I guess the only thing I find remotely comparable to it is maybe the Watergate era, but a lot of the stuff, you know, was related to the 1972 election, a lot of the things that Nixon did, but really most of it didn't come out until after he was reelected in 1972. So, as you say, I don't think there's really much of a precedent for not only this idea of keeping the president off the ballot, but also all the criminal charges that Donald Trump is facing um, and this really massive amount of litigation going into the election. I know that we're waiting to find out what the Supreme Court does, but it is interesting about this bipartisan group. The vote in Illinois was unanimous to keep Donald Trump on the ballot for now. What does that speak about democracy? Well, I think, you know, again, I, one thing I found interesting about this is that one of the Republican members of the State Board of Election came out and said she thought that Donald Trump had committed insurrection. Um, 
but and so you have to ask the question well um you know why keep him on the ballot but again i i think that they're really trying to say we can't make this decision that this is not a decision for the state board of elections to make but it's rather a decision for the courts to make and so i think as much as anything that's how i interpreted it do we see this as making a donald trump stronger i mean definitely his base uh, uh in, enjoys these victories and 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 he's fundraising off of these facts as well well, I think, you know, a couple of things. I think the more Donald Trump is challenged um, in, in, in the courts and that he's brought before the courts, I think it does make his base more passionate. One thing about Donald Trump's base is that not all, but many people who make up his base would be considered somewhat unreliable voters. In other words, they may not turn out for every election. Um, and so I think this is something that fires them up, the perceived attacks on Donald Trump, and that helps him in, in the sense that it gets them to come out for the election, which they may or may not do otherwise. I think there's another group out there that is maybe less sold on Donald Trump, but views the ballot thing in particular, maybe the larger court cases facing Donald Trump as a fairness issue. Um, so is Donald Trump being treated fairly? And if he's kept off the ballot, I think those voters might see this as unfair, even if they're not um, unfair and anti-democratic, even if they're not particularly sold on Donald Trump himself. So I think in both of those ways, um, you know, did this line of litigation may help Donald Trump. Now, of course, if he is uh, kept off the ballot, that clearly doesn't help him. I, I don't perceive that, or I don't predict that the Supreme Court would keep him off the ballot, but I think these perceived attacks um, to some degree work in his favor. We have gone through Iowa and, and now New Hampshire, South Carolina, of course, uh, coming up for the Republicans uh, later uh, this month of February. Um, why do you think that uh, Ron DeSantis lost momentum or never had traction and why Nikki Haley isn't faring better? Although I think more than 40 percent of the vote in New Hampshire was moderately significant. Yeah, I, I guess I think one way to think about this is that Donald Trump is running as a de facto incumbent. I mean, he's not president right now, clearly, but he was the president. And so he was the leader of his party when he was president. It's very difficult to topple uh a, a president from your party. So, you know, Ted Kennedy couldn't do it against Jimmy Carter. Um, Pat Buchanan couldn't do it against George H.W. Bush. So I think there's very, you're, you're facing a very difficult environment as a challenger in this circumstance. Beyond that, I think um, Ron DeSantis was not a particularly good candidate, particularly in an environment like Iowa. I mean, he did get a lot of evangelical people in Iowa to support him, but Iowa's a very retail state. Um, you have to have these sort of good one-on-one -on -one skills. Clearly, he didn't. Uh, I think he seemed irritable a lot of times as a candidate. And I, you know, if you're running a bigger state where you can depend a lot more on ads and things like that, I think that's okay. But in a state like Iowa, where there is this long tradition of retail politics where you have to communicate with voters one-on-one. -on -one. Same thing in New Hampshire, although he had dropped out of that by then, of course. Um, Nikki Haley's issues are a little bit different, I think. I think she is a better stump campaigner. Um, but I think that she's appealing to maybe a Republican Party of the past 
which uh, a more establishment Republican Party that is certainly in the minority in the Republican Party now. So I think some of the issues that she was pushing, like, you know, a strong, aggressive foreign policy, those are things that Reagan pushed back in the 80s. But I don't think they resonate the same way as they did then. I mean, you know, Trump has made his brand uh, maybe the U.S. withdrawing more from world affairs and having more isolation foreign policy. And I think that's where the energy in the party is right now, um, not some of the issues that Nikki Haley was emphasizing. Well, and as you said, the establishment, and, and some could say some of those are the, the never Trumpers as well. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the Republican Party really does seem to be fragmented between MAGA uh, never Trumpers and perhaps what you might call independent Republicans, those that might go for Donald Trump or not. Um, that makes it really fragmented. Is it tougher for the former president to make a coalition here to, to somehow that these these differing viewpoints within the Republican Party somehow coalesce? Well, I, I do think it's a it's a tricky balance. Um, my sense is that to a large degree, but not completely degree, the Republican Party has coalesced around Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, this is he is where the Republican Party is right now. Now, I think one interesting thing to think about going beyond 2028, where we're assuming one way or the other, you know, in, in 2028, excuse me, that Donald Trump will not be on the ballot. Where does that go? So is, is it um, more of a cult of personality or is he really are is the issues he's raising and i think that maybe won't be answered until 2028 or beyond but i do think you know the never trumper faction is becoming smaller and smaller either they have sort of decided okay this is where the party is we're going to go with trump or they have kind of defected and either become independents or democrats well, and you also have those groups like the Lincoln Project, which had those devastating ads that that were never really broadcast. They just made it to, uh, on social media everywhere. Really a novelty, if anything else, in, in 2020. I mean, does that kind of attack now wear out because it's kind of been there, done that? I think so. And I think, you know, the Lincoln Project people, they have become de facto Democrats now, essentially, you know, four years later. Um, so... Well, I mean, eight years later, excuse yeah, me, exactly. 2016 was where a lot of that Lincoln Project energy was was come. Well, also in 2020, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that those people have really moved on. Let's talk about the tenor of 2024 in the fact that it really seems that both sides are, if not using the word, certainly uh, beckoning Armageddon, um, that, that if a Democrat wins, it's going to be horrendous for the country, uh, a downhill, open borders. If Donald Trump wins, um, it will be an authoritarian government. It, it, this 2020, and you know races have been always, you know, in some ways painted black and white. This one seems different, though. Well, I, I think, you know, there's a gradual process that you're alluding to that each election you would kind of notch it at a more extreme level. I think one problem I, I would see that sort of exacerbates this is the two-party system. Um, voters feel like, you know, they have to ultimately go with one team or the other, even if they don't really like it. So I, I think what's changed to some degree is that not that people, Democrats either or Republicans really love 
their respective party, but they really, really hate and fear the other party. And I think that's something that's really changed since 20 years ago, say, or so. Um, and so you know, the political scientists talk about this two-party doom loop to kind of describe this phenomenon where you ratchet every election, where there's more hatred, where there's more fear. Um, and I don't know that the average voter really wants that. I think to some degree that's party leader driven, um, but they have to sort of, th that's the menu they're offered, um, either Republican or Democrat. And they really fear so much the other side that I, I think that's where they're going. If we did have um, election rules that allowed for third parties to be more viable, then I think we might be able to get out of that. But unfortunately, we don't really. And, and from the Electoral College and uh, the way congressional races are set up and, and on down, it's really hard to break that two-party monopoly, even though I think the average voter is not particularly happy with it. Well, and that brings up the question is that, of course, you know, you could have a third-party candidate who may not win, but you're basically a spoiler. You're robbing from one side or the other. Right. I mean, yeah, with, with the Electoral College and the way that's structured, you really, it, it, you, the third party are now set up to be spoilers. Um, and you don't really see that right now. I mean, you have, you have uh, what is it, Marjorie Williamson, and, and you have uh, uh, Kennedy uh, on the Democratic side. But but you wonder if the Republicans might put up, once again, a, a never-Trumper or I'm not thinking that Haley, uh, uh, Nikki Haley would run in, in that position, but but do you have that feeling that you might find a splinter group, particularly on the Republican side? Well, I mean, I think one thing to really look out for is this no labels group uh, that's out there trying to uh, run a third party candidate. It has a lot of money backing it. Um, and so, you know, some combination of like Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin or something like that, sort of uh, a Republican and Democrat who are considered more moderate. Um, you know, I, I think that's a real wild card um, in this election. They've been kind of quiet about what they're going to do, but they basically said after Super Tuesday, they're going to announce that they are actually going to run candidates or not. And so I think that's one thing that's really out there that hasn't been paid as much attention to, but that we should really kind of watch and see what the implications of that are. Let's talk Illinois politics. J.B. Sure. Pritzker um, uh, um, being a Democratic uh, governor who is running on uh, uh, a better fiscal situation for the state of Illinois and as a strong leader for Illinois. Do you really see that he has national um, aspirations? I think he does. I mean, I certainly don't have any inside information, uh, you know, from J.B. Pritzker or anything like that. But I, I do think he has national uh, ambitions. And I think if Biden wouldn't have run again, I think there's a good chance he would have run in 2024. But I, I also think there's a good chance that he, it, you know, is still preparing himself for 2028. Um, you know, one thing I find kind of interesting is, you know, some of the further left parts of the Democratic Party, Democratic Socialists and so forth, are, have kind of started this meme campaign to publicize Pritzker. Um, and so, you know, I don't know that that's on many people's radar right now, but I think, you know, among activists in the Democratic Party or even adjacent to the Democratic Party, there is a lot of interest in J.B. Pritzker. And so I, I do think there's a strong chance that he would run in 2028. 
Democrats have had a supermajority in the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate for some time now. It's continuing right now. It just seems that as, as far as Democrats are concerned, they're pretty happy with the fact that uh, they're getting something accomplished right now and you don't have a Speaker Mike Madigan involved. Um, does that seem to be the way you're reading Illinois politics right now, is that it just seems to be for some people more effective and less kingmaker or less Madigan controlled, and it gives Democrats a better light? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I think about this, and Madigan actually anticipated this interesting and helped bring this about, but the balance of power in the Democratic Party in Illinois is shifted from the city of Chicago to the suburbs, which, of course, is where all the growth is. You know, historically, going back 20, 30 years, the Republicans dominated the suburbs. And, you know, the leaders in the House and the Senate were Republicans. Now, uh, Democrats are very strong in the suburbs. And you've got a shift in the leadership from, you know, people like Michael Madigan and John Cullerton, Emil Jones before him, Phil Rock before him, who were all Chicago Democrats who were the leaders in the legislature. Now you've got two suburban leaders among the Democrats. So the Speaker of the House, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, both from the suburbs. And I think that kind of illustrates this shift um, and has helped the Democrats keep this supermajority because their ability to dominate the suburbs, um, but has also maybe kept them more relevant as you know, the population of Chicago has declined, uh, whereas the suburbs have, have grown. And so I, I guess that's how I would interpret um, the Democrats continuing staying power is that they have been able to dominate many suburban legislative races. And as super majorities and as the dominant party in a state, there is the chance that they overreach. And you take a look sure. at perhaps the gun laws, um, the protection of LGBTQ rights, um, the the uh, uh, laws in regards to uh, Illinois libraries that you cannot take certain books off the shelves. Is is that a real problem when you have such a majority rule? It is. Um, I, yeah, I mean, that's historically in other states where you've had super majorities in one party, they often factionalize and, and, and divide up and, and can't really govern very well. Um, I think so far that hasn't happened in Illinois. And I think, again, in part, I would attribute that to the suburbs' more relative moderation. Uh, I mean, some of the examples you gave, I think downstaters may not see that as so moderate, but I think, um, you know, the sub suburbs' relative moderation compared to maybe if Chicago was still running everything. And it is still very much two different states, Illinois is, when you take a look at the uh, uh, the blueness, of course, of the Chicago area. And as you were pointing out, you know, the, the purple, perhaps you could best describe the ring counties in some areas. And then the uh, metropolitan areas like Rockford, the Quad Cities, you know, Springfield being uh, and, and the, uh, uh, the uh, college communities being blue. But other parts of the state are really a deep red. Yeah, and that that's really been a trend over recent years in Illinois. I mean, if you go back oh, 20, 30 years or so, parts of Southern Illinois were pretty blue. And that was really kind of a legacy of the Southern Democrat type politics, not necessarily liberal, but still affiliated with the Democratic Party and associated with the Democratic Party. Now, you know, as you kind of suggested, Illinois, downstate Illinois is really a sea of red, with a few blue dots like Rock Island County, Peoria County, Champaign County, um, Sangamon County. Sometimes you know there, yeah. there's a few, but but really, but really mostly red, which 
was not always true. I mean, even some rural areas in downstate Illinois had relatively um, strong Democratic turnout and strong Democratic party at the grassroots level. But but that's less and less true now. Once again, as a student of politics um, and being able to see the Iowa caucuses up close for so many election cycles, now that their power has diminished after this election and the question of whether New Hampshire is going to have any power at all, it makes you wonder what the role of Illinois is. Once again, the Illinois primary is set for March 19th. So is some major states, Florida, Arizona, Ohio, all on March 19th which is a date that they'll have very little influence, but all those states are big states, so critically important in November. Uh, do you think that the Iowa primary may be moving up in the calendar anytime soon, particularly 2028? The Illinois primary? Yeah. Did I, I'm sorry, did I misspeak? I'm sorry. You said Iowa primary, yeah. Thank you, yes. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, so I don't really see um, much chance of that. I mean, the Democratic National Committee has really tried to structure the primaries and well, the contests, I say primaries and caucuses in a different way. Um, and there was some discussion in this of moving Illinois up earlier. And they basically said we're gonna move they want a Midwestern industrial state that was diverse. They decided to move up Michigan instead. Um now, of course, the states ultimately control, you know, when they want to have their primaries. But I think given the DNC preferences, I, I don't see uh, the Illinois legislature bucking that. You may recall in 2008, they did move up the primary to help Barack Obama, um, and they moved it to February, um, but then they moved it back again to March. And so I don't think, um, given the DNC's preferences, I, I don't think Illinois will move up. I mean, this year, I think, I would say the race is over. I mean, we're going to get a Trump-Biden contest um so you know even if they would have booted up after new hampshire probably wouldn't have made any difference but um i i don't think illinois is is gonna move up given that the dnc seems to have expressed this preference for michigan being the industrial midwestern state that they want to be have the earlier primary I know you don't have a crystal ball but let's talk about what you see for the future for the campaign of 2024 is it all going to be economics as the major issue because it, poll after poll is showing that and then immigration and um, uh, uh, somewhat uh, the Middle East and Ukraine as well, uh, but it still is very much a pocketbook campaign, is it not? Well, yes. Uh, and, you know, historically, most presidential campaigns are really based on these pocketbook issues. And so so that's not uncommon. Uh models political scientists use to predict the outcomes of elections, a, a key variable is the state of the economy. And so I, I think that it will likely hold. As you said, immigration is something that is big in this election. I think it's become important. I think part of how that plays out depends on whether Congress can pass this immigration bill they've been debating. Uh, if they can, that probably takes it off a little, uh, takes off the table a little bit for Trump. Uh, if they can't pass a bill, then Trump can still rail against their inaction. I think that probably helps him. Um, I think one sleeper issue that is maybe still out there is abortion. You know, that's played a big role in 2022 um, since the Supreme Court's decision uh, to basically overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, so well, and obviously think, the administration thinks that's a big issue because you have Vice President Kamala Harris 
basically campaigning on that over the last few weeks. Right. And I, you've also got a lot of states putting these referenda about abortion on the ballot at the same time as the presidential election, that idea to try to dr drive Democratic turnout. So I, I think that's the thing. And what, what was the other one you mentioned? I'm sorry. Uh, it'd be immigration, but also uh, Ukraine and, and Ukraine. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's really another wild card, I think, um, because you've got I mean, you know, take Michigan, for example, which is a real swing state. You've got a big Muslim population uh, that has historically been pretty strongly Democrat, but is very angry at Joe Biden right now about his stance on the Middle East, believing he's too supportive of Israel. So I think Biden is walking a real tightrope on that one. I mean, I, I think Trump has kind of stayed away from that interestingly so far, and that's probably smart on his part because I, except for criticizing Biden, of course, but, but not taking a clear stance of what he would actually do. And I think that's smart in a way because it's, it's a very difficult issue to navigate without making more people mad at you than are going to be in favor of you. Our thanks to Western Illinois University political science professor Keith Bockelman. Charlotte Blue is her stage name, but she went by the name Charlotte Boyer when she took to the stage of the Black Box Theater to perform for us. Here's Charlotte Blue with Free Like a Bird. Like a Bird by Charlotte Blue, performed a few years back at the Black Box Theater in Moline. Charlotte just performed at Domingos at Mercado in Moline last weekend. 
on the air, on the radio, on the web, on your mobile device, and streaming on your computer. Thanks for taking some time to join us as we talk about the issues on the cities. and Van Ho Funeral Homes have been serving Quad City families and veterans for over 100 years. Whelan Presley is located in Rock Island, Milan, Reynolds, and Van Ho in East Moline, proudly supporting WQPT. Alternatives is a proud supporter of WQPT and has been serving our community for 40 years. Alternatives provides professional guidance to maintain independence and quality of life for older adults and adults with disabilities.